How many of you like to go to weddings? It's the most memorable. What's that? I just didn't hear the There's a few. Let me ask a different question. What's the most memorable wedding that you've ever been to? Yeah. Before that, it was probably when I was a little kid and my dad dumped punch all over his suit and I was wondering what was going to happen next. So. Or uh, they used to always serve those little mint things. I, I would always take one thinking that it would be better than the last time I had tried it and it wasn't. But um, It was also interesting to watch how weddings have changed over the years used to throw rice and then we decided it was killing birds so we wouldn't do that anymore. Or no. Yeah, it was rice. And then you know, bubbles, bird seed, all kind of different things. Um, uh, read stories or in my case I had to break up a prank where uh, one of my brothers soon-to-be brother-in-laws was mechanically inclined and wanted to rewire his car brake pedal to the horn. I'm like, let's not do that. So uh, people have different customs at weddings. Sometimes people try to get creative and write their own vows and sometimes that goes well and sometimes not. Um, sometimes people overcome with emotion whether it be tears, whether it be joy. Um, sometimes people are overcome with something else, like when they fall down because they went faint. Many different things can happen at weddings. I don't know what your experience has been, but in the psalm that we're going to look at tonight, we see a wedding that is unique among all weddings. And you'll see why as we proceed through this psalm. Starts out, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This one doesn't, isn't commonly taken to be a psalm of David. Some other writer records it for us. Uh, it is a song, a poem, a description of the king. The figure of speech in verse 1 is interesting. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Ever thought of your tongue as a pen that records things? It's a fascinating idea. And I'm sure when he said pen, he wasn't thinking ink pen. It was, would have been something more like a, a quill or a piece of reed, something like that. But he was ready to speak of and to the king. Starts out in verse 2. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. This is a king who is honored for his words. And not just a short-term blessing, it's described as perhaps an exaggeration until we see the rest of the psalm. God has blessed you forever. Uh, different kings would address the people at different points in Israel's history. And those words uh, were sometimes good. Sometimes they were evil in the case of kings like Jeroboam who led the people away from God. But this king's words are described as gracious 
and as a, a grounds for God's blessing him. Then it moves on to a description of the king's acts of war. Verse 3, Gird your sword on, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. We have here the picture of a victorious warrior, one who has a sword, one who, interestingly, is not conquering for fame or for extra territory or for riches, but to uphold truth, meekness, and righteousness. We don't often think of conquest and victory uh, set alongside something like meekness, do we? But I think we'll see the connection as we proceed further. I think we do have the idea of truth and righteousness being something that must be fought for and defended. Uh, and then this idea of sharp arrows. Sometimes that's a sign of judgment. Sometimes it's a description of temptation. In this case, I think it is a sign of victory. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. But not just people, generally speaking, those who are the enemies of the king. Then we come to verse 6, which might be even more puzzling. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of right uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So not only is the king honored for his words, for his acts of victory, but also for his character, loving righteousness and hating wickedness ruling in uprightness. There's this idea of anointing with joy. We see that followed in verses 8 and 9. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Uh, gold of Ophir is a phrase that we see several times in the Old Testament. This would have been fine gold, pure gold, valuable gold not mixed with impurities. Uh, the fact that it says king's daughters are among your noble ladies is I think significant from the perspective that if princesses of other nations are the ones who are waiting on the king and queen that's pretty significant as to their status among the nations, right? And this idea of fragrance um, I think is to be understood in terms of blessing and it's also to be I think probably set in the context of a culture in which people probably didn't bathe every day um, and so something that helped with that was having fragrant spices and we see these spices as being something that were attractive and um, enjoyed and then the tone, maybe tone, the um, who's being addressed, who's speaking, changes. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, then the king will desire, desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. 
The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter in the king's palace. So someone who is a prospective bride for the king is addressed, and there's this sort of a warning or a command given that if you cling to your family, that you will not be in some sense fit for the king, and that there is a sense of reverence and obedience, and that there is a reward for being associated with the king. Uh, Tyre was a great nation to the north of Israel, a trading partner, uh, one that was well off at many points in her history. And we see again, not only are there princesses who are ladies-in-waiting to the king, but there are also rich people who are subservient to the king, to his prospective bride. And then verses 13 through 15 is sort of this idea of a wedding procession. Interesting point about this. Sometimes you'll open up a commentary and it'll say, here's all the things you need to know about ancient history in order to understand this passage. But if you just read the passage, what does it say? She's glorious within, her clothing is interwoven with gold, she'll be led to the king in embroidered work, the virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you, they'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing, they will enter the king's palace. In context, it's a wedding ceremony, it's a procession leading up to the actual wedding. You don't need to study a whole lot of ancient archaeology to get that picture because it's clear in the passage. I point that out to say there is value in looking at things about Bible background and all those sorts of things, but if we read the text carefully, most things will make sense when we read that passage or set other passages alongside them. There are a very few places where perhaps we may go astray if we don't have some grasp of what things were like in their day. But more often than not, you don't have to understand all of the specifics of a Jewish uh, betrothal engagement and wedding ceremony to get the picture of what this is saying. What is it emphasizing? It's emphasizing the joy, the gloriousness, the honor, all of those things. And that's clear whether you've ever observed a Jewish wedding ceremony or read a book on it or not. Then verses 16 and 17, and this again is where the language is important. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. This is now addressing the king again, grammatically. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. If you were an Israelite listening to this psalm, I think there would have been a degree to which you would have been puzzled. Because there's not an earthly king that lives up to these things. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. There are examples that, that come somewhat close to this. David, in his speaking of the Psalms, Solomon and his speaking of wise sayings, we get glimpses of the king who speaks wise words. Those who loved righteousness and hated wickedness, think of someone like Hezekiah. But not perfectly. There is no human king who lives up to the descriptions in these words. And so we either have to look at it as exaggeration 
or as pointing to one who had not yet come. And people dispute whether the psalmist fully understood the words that he was writing. But I think that rather than trying to unravel that, which we can't entirely know not having been there and talked with him as he's writing these words, I think we need to be careful not to minimize the force of what he's saying, especially in verse 6. When he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, he's addressing the king who is held up in this psalm. Why do I say that? Because it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God. So it says, Your throne, O God, God has given to you. What does this mean? We'll turn to another passage in just a moment. But, um, actually, let's turn to that passage, then we'll come back here. Turn to Hebrews 1. We'll start in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Who is the king Psalm 45 is talking about? It's Jesus. That is not adding something to what the text says. That is the only proper understanding of that text because no human king lives up to what it is describing. No human king can properly be addressed as God to whom God has given authority. Only Christ fits that description. As we continue through the passage, I want to point out some other things that I don't think are, back in Psalm 45, I don't think that these are in any way exaggerations. I think they are helpful connections to the message that we see in the New Testament. So, grace is poured upon your lips. How do they describe Jesus' teaching? No one speaks like this. Who desire to uphold righteousness? We see brief glimpses of this, for example, when Jesus purges the temple of those that have corrupted it, right? And we see anticipation of it in passages like those in Thessalonians or in Revelation or in some of those passages. Even in Ephesians, we see this idea of exaltation and of victory and of ruling in righteousness. You know, the phrase that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. We see that looked forward to in the prophets and in the New Testament. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is going to destroy his enemies. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. We see this at the Battle of Armageddon. We see this at various other places in the Bible. Only Christ has an eternal throne. David died. 
his throne was superseded by the rulership of Babylonians eventually and none of his descendants have sat on it for hundreds of years but Christ will reign as David's heir forever according to Revelation 20 for a thousand years and then for all of time beyond time perhaps I should say there is a sense of reward that no human being can live up to because in the best of our moments we cannot say fully 100% that we have loved righteousness and hated wickedness and deserve God's anointing and rewarding in this kind of a way. But Christ did what God commanded him to do and received, at least in part, the reward that was due him and will reign in victory. Verse 8, perhaps is an anticipation of the burial spices that were used at Christ's death. We don't know that for sure, but it's a possible connection to be considered. This idea of ladies-in-waiting being princesses of other nations and great nations coming and bowing before Israel, we saw glimpses of that in the time of Solomon. We see it again in the description of the end times that the nations will come to Jerusalem and bow before her king. Some people see here when it speaks to the daughter as one of perhaps Solomon's brides, perhaps when he married the princess of Egypt. Some ironically see it as a reference to Ahab and Jezebel, which seems far from a likely connection. I think that there is anticipation of what we see in Ephesians 5, which is that Christ says he will set apart the church for himself as a glorious bride dressed in clean clothes with no spot of sin in her. And then verse 16, In place of your fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I think here, too, we see an anticipation of those who will be called the sons of God who will reign with him in the end. And then verse 17, again, fits no human king. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. The name of Christ has been remembered since his coming, even until now, and will be until the end and in eternity. And so again, this set of statements does not fit a human king, but it does perfectly fit Christ and his work and give us a glimpse of God's overall plan of things. Did the Israelites who sang this song fully understand it? It's quite possible that they did not. But when you see a passage like this, and then you set it alongside the statement of Christ when he walks with the men on the way to Emmaus and said, all the scriptures testify to me, we ought to be convinced that that's true, I think. In different ways, to a greater or lesser degree, but the scriptures testify to God and his work in and through Christ 
and his fulfillment of his eternal purpose. And the end result, even as this psalm ends, is that the people ought to give thanks and praise to God. So that's where the title tonight comes from. Praise the righteous king who conquers, who marries, and who endures. We, I think, sometimes don't have a full picture of Christ and his work, both his first coming and his second coming, if we do not read the Old Testament and see all of the things that anticipate his life and eternity. And so hopefully, looking at this psalm together tonight has been a helpful, if brief, glimpse at those truths. And hopefully it provokes us to respond. As the writer said, my heart overflows with a good theme. If you were able to be the one who was reporting on, telling about the greatest event that ever happened, far outshines any infatuation with what's happening with people connected with the throne of England, far greater than any of the notable weddings of the past. He's spilling over in descriptive language, speaking of all that's going on. And then result of all these things, by God's work, is that the people would give thanks forever and ever. And so let that be our response as well. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a passage like this, hopefully we are overcome with a sense of your wisdom, of the amazing fact that you could take someone who wrote thousands of years ago and speak of something that happened from our perspective several thousand years ago and things that will yet happen in the future and bring them all together in a beautiful description of the way in which Christ is worthy of honor as very God in terms of his words, his victories, his work in and through his church and his people throughout all of time, and in the praise that we then, in response, ought to give to him, to you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.